When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to After the Deluge. If you're new to the show, uh, this is basically a podcast about Jackson Brown that goes album by album, starting with the first one all the way up to the one we're going to talk about today, which is called Downhill from Everywhere. It comes out on July 23rd, and usually I start each episode with a Rolling Stone review, but there's not one on the site yet, so we're going to forego that, but we have a pretty special episode, so not really worried about it. Our guest today is the ultimate authority on all things Jackson Brown. The guest is Jackson Brown. Somewhere midway through making this series, which just started with me recording interviews in the closet with uh, friends and my cousins and my dad and stuff, um, I allowed myself the possibility of of this episode happening, but I kind of never expected that it actually would. I'm elated that it did. Um, It's a perfect way to wrap up this project, which really meant a lot to me. Huge thanks to Cree and Buddha and Jackson for making it happen. Before I move on, I just want to thank the guests by name who joined me. That's William Matheny, Ryan Page, Stephen Hyden, Kyle Cox, Dana Cox, Holly Gleason, Kit Rackless, Pete Francis, David Wilde, Jonathan Bernstein, Anthony DeCurtis, and Angie Martosio. A couple of things. You can find me on Twitter at Routine Layup. Uh, my handle used to be my name, but I killed that account. You can also email me at justincox22 at gmail.com. Um, I just launched a baseball podcast called And the Pitch. It just looks at one specific pitch instead of one album and whatever happens during that pitch, everything from the cultural context to the thing that happens on the field to, I mean, it's, it's, it kind of can be absolutely anything and it's been a ton of fun. It's up now. Uh, just search and the pitch anywhere you listen to podcasts and you'll find it. And now onto the album. We start this conversation with the new record, Downhill From Everywhere. I kind of wanted to uh, maintain the style of this podcast, and that is an album-by-album approach, and the new album is Downhill From Everywhere. Pretty quickly from there, we expand beyond the album and just sort of look at his work and his life. I mean, we go all the way back to high school and then through those early albums in the 70s, all the way up to like Somebody's Baby and thinking about um, the value or merit of a pop song. Um, he's not like a canned response kind of guy. You can tell he's kind of exploring and wandering as he answers questions. Um, I choose to find some similarities in that to the songs he writes, which kind of never have an answer. They're always sort of like probing around with more questions, which is something I absolutely love about his music. And if this is your first time hearing the show, you should go back and listen to the rest of them. There are like 12 episodes there that cover 40 or 50 years. And that'll bring you up to current day, starting in like 1972. I like really enjoyed going back to this process of making one of these episodes, like mixing all the songs in and everything like that. I don't think I could ever articulate how valuable this process was during the super weird summer we had last year. The following is my conversation with, to quote the great David Wilde, that beautiful poet child, Jackson Brown.
The Dreamer was a song that I tried to write, I don't know how many years ago. I really, I've tried to figure it out, but I can't remember. It was a song that I tried to write about the Klan, which was very active in the Southwest as well as the South, was down on the border trying to prevent illegal aliens from coming across the border. And uh, that was the opening line of the song. You know, well, the Klan's been down on the border. They say it's to keep law and order. And I guess you never could really get the thing to really, you know, like open up and speak to me. And, and years later, and then the next time I tried to write it was the Minutemen are down on the border because the, the Klan wasn't doing it anymore. Now it was the Minutemen, another right-wing kind of vigilante group. And, it, you know, I thought the irony was that they were trying to uphold the law, but they were taking the law into their own hands, which is not, you know, that's not the law. So I couldn't get that far with it in this scenario, but I had the melody and I showed the melody to this friend of mine, Eugene Rodriguez. And we were in the studio with David Hidalgo working on some stuff for an album that, that he, I was invited to sing on and uh, not to take too long to tell you the story, but he's such a great, great thinker and such a, he acts on his ideals and his principles. And he's, um, he's an intellectual who, who acts, you know, he's, yeah. And um, Eugene um, started writing, about he write he wrote sorry, he made it about somebody who comes to this country to give her you know to make her future. Just a child when she crossed the border to reunite with her father who had traveled north to support her so many years. to give herself to her a future that she could imagine, which is exactly what my grandmother did. It is exactly what all our forebears yeah. All those of us who are not Native Americans. You know, those of us who are not tribal people. That's exactly what our forebears did. That's a good thing Good thing for us to remember. It was for his group. We did it we, and, we, and released it as a single, you know, for Los Senzontles, which is the group that he, I say he's an, he's an intellectual acts on his principles. I mean, he's got a, a cultural center for the children of immigrants from Mexico who need to learn the traditions and the history of their families, the art, the art forms, the, the instruments, the dances, the recipes, the, the celebrations of their parents' homeland. Their homeland is the United States. They're from here. They, they were born here and they're Americans. They need to know where their family comes from. Same way, like I, when, I, when I visited my, my Norwegian relatives in Norway, it was really interesting to see where my grandfather and my grandmother had come from. Way cool, yeah. What life they were leaving behind and what life um, they expected here. But I mean, Eugene had the, he had the straight line right into, and saying things that sometimes seem almost too direct, you know? Or she pledged her, herself to this land and does the best she can. Now, you see, I, I can't write a line that simple. <laughs> She pledged her future to this land and does the best that she can do. I can't write a line that good. It's just like I have to, I'm like, you know, trying to imply things or like. Another, another thing, the song Love is Love was written in Haiti. And the last whole, the part at the end where I'm singing about the priest, Father Rick, who I was working on this song with my friend David Bell and, I, and who knows him very well and who was the person who brought us all down there to, to make this record. I said, well, what, what, we, you know, what do you say about, how do you describe Father Rick? He said, well, the father and the doctor to the poorest of the poor. 
Nice. It still brings a little, you know, like sob, inner sob. Here on the distant sunny shore of an island, all the troubles of the world seem far away. But here on the broken city streets of an island, people work and live and love and struggle every day. That song and similar to like going down to Cuba on the last one, they're this they're this really buoyant, beautiful like way to hear about a part of the world in a way that you don't normally hear about it. Um, I mean, even just right now, like what's hap- what we're hearing about in Cuba and everything, yeah. they're inherently very positive and beautiful. And it seems like a deliberate thing on your part to say, hey, let's talk about this side of this place. Yeah. I'm going down to Cuba to see my friends down where the rhythm where by comparison my troubles just unravel I'm North American, you know Don't like to hear what I can do You can tell me if this is true or not, but I find it to be a little bit of a recurring thing. I, there, there's stuff like Take It Easy was on a shelf and um, someone like Glenn Fry or someone on the Eagles takes it and, and has like someone who probably speaks in those punchy ways. Or you say that you couldn't write a line as simple as the one that was put in that, that song you just mentioned. Or... You've talked multiple times about how downhill from everywhere, that phrase that comes from someone else. It's like these, I feel like you, and I think the same thing was true with somebody's baby, right? It wasn't going to go on an album. It's a pretty simple song, like some kind of like mild hesitance on your part about things like that. But then a realization that like, damn, these things are impactful and they pack a punch and they, just because they're simple, doesn't, that can mean they're better in their way, you know? Yeah, it, it took me a long time to like uh, somebody's baby, but it was, <laughs> <laughs> It was a it was a job. It was an assignment because Danny brought this thing to me. It was a very very infectious guitar thing, and uh, he had you know it's like you get you get you can say whatever you want, but you got to end up with she's got to be somebody's baby. And I'm like, <laughs> you start with the, the la, that last line. And so, I mean, it was um, something that I thought was not as um, important, and not it wasn't as important to me as trying to the other songs. In that period, are lawyers in love or um, uh, knock on any door? I mean, all the stuff I wrote for that record, and I think in the shape of a heart, it might be on that record, or is that on Lives in the Balance? I love this. Yeah, this is all blurry now. It's, it's starting to like. So the point is, it it wasn't. I didn't. I didn't think it was important, and and so, but I did need to write that second verse and it was really took me a long time to get to it. But really, anytime you sit down and work, it's like you forget about all that. And I remember sitting at the piano and coming up with the, the, the chorus and I'm thinking, well, I like this. This is pretty good. I mean, sometimes you write something and think, I really like that. That's, I don't know why. Oh, yeah. But I got, you know, you can't really, you don't look at from the end of the telescope because I'm going to end up here, you know. You just set out yeah. to uh, em- embrace some, some subject. And um, in writing something like Somebody's Baby, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a therapist that I was ragging on this song and, and he was saying, I think you've got this all wrong man this is this is about something important everybody <laughs> wants to belong to somebody everybody wants yeah. to feel loved and this is uh the most fundamental thing so why are you man i love that you know we didn't sit around talking about my songs all the time he just had to point out to me but i think it was maybe something that he might have noticed too that i had a i'm i'm i am trying to explain things to myself you're trying to describe life to yourself and sometimes that description happens just in the act of doing anything. 
and you catch you catch sight of it eventually and go oh that's what it that's what I'm doing that's what it looks like she's probably somebody's only light gonna shine tonight yeah she's probably somebody's baby it's a cool job to have because you know on one hand you're supposed to you know <laughs> you're supposed to show up and do all this stuff that you think is like, you know, when I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that whatever thing you think is important about yourself, is probably not the important part. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's honestly something that has drawn me to your music. And I think a lot of people, and it's amazing. It's, it's kind of, I think it's a beautiful thing that at your, you're in your seventies and putting out this record and songs like still looking for something and a little soon to say are just as sort of uncertain and searching and sort of, there's no nothing prescriptive at all. It's sort of like mm. a perpetual sort of like figuring it out, maybe with a not with with full knowledge that never fully will. Like, should I still be in this city? I've been the stuff about being in L.A. and looking to leave the city your whole life, but still being there, but loving it. But also, I don't know, I identify hard with that. I love that. Yeah. And the idea that that I mean, that's one thing to be singing about when you're in your 20s. That's that's pretty profound when you're in your 70s, you know. I say that as a person who <laughs> perpetually kind of doesn't totally know what to do next, you know, even yeah. perfectly happy in the place I am constantly thinking about. Where are you, by the way? I'm up on Orcas Island in Washington. Orcas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, actually, actually, so I, I work, I do communications for a marine science organization up here called the Sea Doc Society. And so last year you put out downhill from everywhere and, right. uh, I was putting on, I was putting an event together and everything. And we have a science director who's like, he, he's he's a great scientist and everything, but he's has an extra eye towards sort of like the storytelling and communicating and kind of like activating people. And it's not an activist organization. It's pretty like a science based organization. Uh-huh. But like the area here is called the Salish Sea, but only like nine percent of people know what the Salish Sea is. And so my job, I'm the communications person. Part of my job is like get more people to know what the Salish Sea is so that they can care about it. And there are 8 million people here and out here on Orcas Island, it's easy to be like, Salish Sea is right there. I live on it. But in Seattle and all these places, it's less so, you know, but you need them to care. And, and what's kind of beautiful is like, if you draw a line around the Salish Sea as an ecosystem, its, it's borders are like the tops of the ridges of the mountains. So everything that comes down from that into the water, like that's the ecosystem, you know? You know about Algalita and the Algalita Foundation and Captain Charles Moore? Only from what I've heard you talk about in interviews about the song. Yeah, I've, I've met him a couple of times. He's great. I mean, imagine being an oceanographer and like he's motoring across the Pacific and he realizes he's just like, where'd all this plastic come from? He's just like, he happens to motor straight through the North, the North Pacific gyre. This is the garbage patch, right? Yeah. And he's the one that kind of like brought it to everybody's attention. But he's also that that whole that the way of summing things up by saying the ocean is downhill from everywhere. It really brings you in, in it brings into focus the fact that everything that humanity does produces waste that has got to go someplace and that is going into the ocean or landfills and even the landfills. I mean, it doesn't go anywhere. The plastic that we you know. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. There's no away. It became like a sort of like a sequel to the song I'd written called Down, um, If I Could Be Anywhere, which was a song that started out to be about surfing. 
and just like being in the water and suddenly finding out that you're like, you know, that you're in a bunch of plastic garbage. You have to admit it's clever. Maybe the pinnacle of human endeavor. When things are made to throw away, but never made to disappear. I was showing that first, first, that everybody knows I was sort of in my cabin writing this song and I was trying to get it somewhere with it and, and I actually played a little bit of it when I sang I it was in the Galapagos and I was on the on a on a, a gathering called Mission Blue that was Sylvia Earle's prize at and the TED Talks. Dr. Sylvia Earle, I'm sure you know who that is. Yep. She had brought everybody together to try to communicate the situ the, the 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 shape that the ocean is in and the dire need for creating marine protected areas. Anyway, I was trying to write this song. Anyway, somebody and like she's she's fantastic with words. She's always she talks about things like the blue heart of the planet and Charles Moore saying, you know, downhill from everywhere. They're just really commu great communicators sometimes. And Be involved, and and then I got so many invitations from those ocean, ocean advocates and oceanographers to go join them on their boats, and I think, wow, that's to go out for a month at a time, you know, to be collecting data and to be immersed in it. It's a real, it's a really great life, I think. Uh, well, if you're ever up on Orcas Island, we got a boat. Yeah, <laughs> I had friends uh, that um, used to go to Orcas every year. Craig Durge and his wife Judy. Someone told me when I was doing this this podcast here, I was at like a bonfire, and they're like, "This guy used to play with Jacqueline Brown, lives here." And yeah. I, I, I don't know; I've never talked to him, no idea. But yeah, I, yeah, he's got a cabin up there, I think, and I think that they—I don't know if they still go there. But I think, or they still have it. I, I should ask them. Yeah, Craig and Judy. One time, one time, Craig. So these Craig and this other musician got set adrift somehow. They got in a boat, they couldn't quite get it. They, without, the, the, the motor didn't work, there were no order, <laughs> and they literally drifted away from the dock and were drifting out to sea. Yikes. From Orcas. It was a big event. I was just didn't know, we didn't, people, you know, heard about it later, it was just one of those, seeing the dock receding and then pretty soon the island is receding, you're just out there. And this guy, um, oh man, what's Tim's name? Great bass player who played with Crosby, Seals, and Nash, and had also played with James Brown as a kid. Sweet, Tim Drummond. Nice, but you know, you know, this the, our relationship to the natural world is pretty tenuous. You know, we, we don't we've we've sort of made a a place for for our species to thrive, but we're you know we're um, also severing we're we're sort of severing the lifeline there. I mean, yeah. we're, we're like making it impossible for, I mean, we need the ocean to, to survive here. And, and if we don't make it, the ocean will still be here. The thing you did that's, I think, really cool about this song is that like that phrase downhill from everywhere, it's, it's kind of power is in its simplicity, you know, and then you take it and it's, it's, this is the idea that you could call it any kind of like political or activist song, it, even really an environmental song is it's literally a song saying 
we live uphill from the ocean. So if you put a thing down, it will go down in this direction. And so mm -hmm. you took that phrase and the rest of the song that you wrote around it is in keeping with that simplicity, just downhill from the prison, downhill from the mall, downhill from the factory farm and the hospital, downhill from high school, downhill from the gym, downhill from the church and the stadium. I mean, these are, there's nothing politically said there, you know, it's, it's, this is the world. And where do the things go when we let go of yeah. them? That's, I, I, I think there's something impactful in that. And well, you've talked, you're... go for it. Wow, you're giving me great pleasure by reciting those words and by putting it like that, because I think the um, the job was to sort of do exactly what you're what you're what you're pointing to, which is to make people see those things without feeling that they're being lectured or that they have to. You don't have to pay attention. You don't. If you pay attention to my lyrics, it should pay off. But if you don't, you should also really enjoy the song without. If even if you only get half of those, even if you get some of the, you know, this is the way it is with rock and roll. Sometimes you just like that part of the song that you like and you don't listen very closely but uh yeah i i wanted <laughs> i wanted to make a song that you they did. come into your house yeah <laughs> coming for me they i wanted to make a song that you don't have to listen to linearly it, it's got to be infectious enough that you when you do hear it over and over again and you eventually hear all the song and this is true of all, all the great songs that 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 other people have written that i've taken into my consciousness you know i mean there's a moment in time when i was hearing like a rolling stone probably for the thousandth time but it was also like the first time yeah and i suddenly was old enough or experienced enough to get a whole other layer of understanding about what otherwise they were just really infectious images you know now dylan was always really great for that uh and I like that you could say it as fast, read it as fastly as you just did, or that I could say, sing it as fast, and that it would then sit there for a moment, and then you could hear some, like all that was like, that's where the um, craft, you know, craft comes in, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it accomplishes a similar thing to like what you do in The Pretender, which is like these, dis, these descriptions of places and kind of repetitive daily life, you know? Like, and, and which are really some of the most like familiar things we have, not not super artistic on the surface or whatever places you go you literally live out your days and here's the way here's 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 where the waste from that trickles and i think it's great um were you you're talking about writing in this way the, the way you're just describing writing this song um early on in the process of writing like when you're when you're much younger were you thinking about stuff that way or were you just writing what was what was your approach then in these like early days of songwriting like, do you know what you're writing about when you sit down to write? Or do you write and find what you're writing about in that process? A lot of what I think about happens like in a car, you know, it could be like, you don't have the chance to sit, you know, you have to try to remember it or like think, you know, put into a song later or the shower. A lot of it's like, um, but I mean, I remember thinking like, for instance, I've, here's a thought. 
I thought at one point, I'm going to get some land and I'm not going to do anything with it. I'm just going to put it aside. So like nothing, so it'll just always be what it is. And I, and I had that thought on the freeway between Orange County and LA. And I used to drive that stretch of road every day because my, my friends and the life that I was drawn to was in, in Hollywood. And my friends were in a band and I was, you know, and they had this incredible band house they all lived in and I was welcome there. I was, I was drawn to that. But in another time I remember like, and I was coming down from acid and I was like, I was, I was lucid enough to drive. I was okay to drive. I got on the freeway and I thought, wow, this, this freeway is like an artery. Look at the, all the taillights were like red cells and all the headlights were like white cells. I'm going, wow, I'm part of this really big, this enormous organism. And I'm this little, you know, this little <laughs> piece of consciousness being like flowing along these, you know, I wound up getting to Hollywood and, and they were, they were like very welcome to me. And there was a whole other bunch of people saying, oh, this kid's coming. He's from coming from Orange County. He's going to join us tonight. And it was like, and I remember being, I just have, I don't know how you get that in a song. You know, I just think that a lot of the stuff that. Are we, are we talking pretender there? No, no, this would have been before all that. This was before I ever made a record. This would have been like when I was 18 or even 17 or 18. Yeah. yeah Cause your family was down in orange County and so you were there. Yeah. Yeah. I still, my mom still lived there and I was, and eventually she moved to Silver Lake. So um, she moved to, you know, uh, in out of orange County herself. She was drawn to um, there were better activities for her. She was a Unitarian and, and the, she liked the, you know, what was going on in LA and she was, I think, I think it was also work. She could kind of work. She was a teacher. So she could kind of, yeah, she was, she was actually uh, my uncle's teacher. Really? In San, I think in the San, yeah, in the San Fernando. Yeah, right. Valley. Right. At, um, uh, I, I can't remember the school. I think Pacoima maybe. I, I don't know. I don't know. That's high school maybe, but, or poly high, or I don't know what grade she taught. Poly, poly, yeah, yeah. That's where my dad went. So my dad, my dad, my family's all, my cousins and stuff are all real big, like Jackson Brown uh-huh. kids. They had this like, uh, greatest hits record that we I heard I'm alive a lot in my house as a little kid and that was sort of passively consumed you know and then come to high school I remember taking this road trip down to my my cousins and I used to always camp in Leo Carrillo like they're oh yeah north of Malibu south of Ventura love, yeah I love Leo Carrillo yeah it's a real close place for my for my family and so um my dad my dad got real into the pretender I think he said that they played the full record on the radio one time and he was like holy shit this is this is it for me and then that kind of spread through all the, the, my family and kind mm, of became right. Jackson Brown kids. And so, yeah, I learned, learned in that process that they said that your mom was one of their teachers. And then also a neighbor, my wife's neighbor, Eileen, what's up, Eileen, uh, big fan of this podcast, big fan of Jackson Brown. I learned. So my wife's parents neighbor is now one of my good buddies because we bond through Jackson Brown. And uh, I think that maybe her husband went to school, had a class with you in Orange County oh, yeah? at some point. Mm. So that's fun. That's fun stuff for me. I'll tell you something funny. You know, Greg Lease, who plays all over this record, who played on, well, he's kind of new to my band, but I've known for a while. We went to, to the Sunny Hills High School at the same time. We didn't know each other. Somebody just gave me a, the annual of a, the, you know, the, an, the, the yearbook, you know, and there's this, there he is. <laughs> I wish I I wish I'd known him then. We knew one. We had one friend in common, but we somehow didn't meet each other. That that friend in common was a very big musical influence on everybody I I knew. 
So it's not surprising that he knew him. And but if Greg Greg wound up getting being in bands and playing, you know, very very soon after high school was playing in country bands and playing pedal steel and playing in roadhouses and stuff. And he's just a, such a great musician. And he's really all over this record. And but he also like I I kind of became friends with him because I told him to that my friend Greg Copeland, who was also somebody who went to high school was looking for somebody to help him make a country record. And Craig is a poet. And the guy that was sort of mentored me in high school, I mean, he was like two years older than me. And he was a guy we'd hitchhike, we'd all get together and hitchhike up the coast and go visit Greg and sleep on the rug at the house that's, you know, he was, had a room in, you know, as a student at San Francisco State. Anyway, he was continued writing songs and it became a singer and would make these albums. And it's the, the most, incredible sort of um esoteric records because they're yeah he doesn't have a career as a singer yeah can you find his music you read you read uh like one of these poems in the documentary oh, yeah. of his about like the seagulls and and like it ends and you're like that's bad and it's like fuck yeah that's bad that sounded that's so cool but like i googled him and couldn't find anything seabirds fly at their own worthy levels i actually know this by heart i love this seabirds fly at their own worthy levels a dozens of dolphins at home in their sea, and I at my altars am hastened by devils to angels who cannot surrender to me. <laughs> Bad, huh? <laughs> Copeland. Greg Copeland is the guy that made me want to write songs. He and Steve Noonan were... Am I right that he's one of the, like, traveling folks on the song for Adam? Yeah, that's right, like, that's right. I drove across the country with him and... Adam Saylor. Though Adam was a friend of mine, I did not know him well. He was alone into his distance, he was deep into his well. I could guess what he was laughing at, but I couldn't really tell. Now the story's told that Adam jumped, but I'm thinking that he. He made a record that Greg produced, that Greg Lease produced. Because I told him, I just ran into Greg. And this is before I knew that he, he had anything. That, he didn't tell me for years that he'd gone to the same high school as me. I was like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> he went to, but before that, I mean, I just noticed him because he could play. I saw him playing with Joe Cocker and Jim Keltner was in the band. And he, I thought, who the hell's that? He sounds like David Lindley because he was playing a Weisenborn. You know, that, that lap steel guitar that's got the hollow neck, the same thing that Ben Harper plays, that David Lindley plays, that yeah. he was playing as Weisenborn. I thought, God, he sounds great. And, oh, yeah. And Keltner said, oh, yeah, that's that's Greg Lease. And I'm like, cool. Everybody gets lonely. Feel like it's all too much. Reaching out for some connection. Maybe just the Sometimes all 
Everybody who's really a working musician might get a really great job with somebody that pays high, but it doesn't mean that they're not still living kind of hand to mouth and have to have to take every little job. Have to take no job too small. Most most musicians I know are totally accessible in terms of you know, can you can you come can you come play this afternoon for fifty bucks? It's like that kind of you know. I mean, I pay just incidentally while we're on the subject. I mean, I pay them double scale. Pay them like I always have paid them because I have. Because the records sell a certain amount, I have an income, and I'm organized in that way. So I don't, I don't ask for these great players to play inexpensively. But it's just great that they're available to play for any amount of money because it's priceless. It's, it's in a way they don't play, they're not paid what it's really worth. Like if somebody like let's just I had this thought just just yesterday because I was listening to a version of My Cleveland Heart that doesn't have Greg Slide on it. And it's just Val and I playing. Val and I wrote the song together. It was just like an app from at home. You'll you'll hear it eventually. I think it's going to come out soon. It's just a version of he and I playing and singing the song. It takes two people to sing the song, but it also, we're playing it. And when it needs a cowbell, you have to have the cowbell, otherwise none, none of it hangs together. But listen to it and saying, wow, this is really, it's, I'm really missing the Greg. And how do you pay somebody for playing great solo on your record? That, that publishing doesn't cover that that slide rips on that song the slide is so infectious and that's why that's why it's doing so well that's why you can listen to it, it comes on immediately and it's really because <laughs> at one point that was the first song that we recorded for this record, and it was so recorded so long ago that we didn't even we didn't look at it for a long time. And then when we were then we had made a bunch more of the record, we were playing it along with everything, and and we just Val and I looked at each other when we listened to this and said, "Well," and Val was playing some slide thing. There was like just the chords themselves are very infectious. You know all that. Yep. That's. So, I mean, there's the songwriting and the way it gets credited and the publishing and the, how that gets divided up, but no one really pays for the, the great solo. doesn't get like there should be a whole separate piece of the money that gets not that anybody's getting paid very much anymore and that's a whole other issue but anyway what greg added to that song is undeniably great and he's just um so it's great to have all these players that are available to you because they, you can't really pay somebody to come in and be a genius you know can you come in and like play an iconic guitar part on my song you know it, it doesn't work that way but they it you can you know, they engage in a search with you. They go, they, they're looking for something. You're looking for something. And sometimes you usually, but usually someone like, like Mark Goldenberg, it's exactly what he does. He comes up with, uh, he's played like, like my example would be like the solo on I'm Alive.
solo on Sky Blue and Black. They have to be played that way. The song has, to, without those parts, the song doesn't sound complete. You know? that end can i ask about so so i was in college when kind of like the 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 rounds of solo acoustic records and tours and stuff like that you did and i went to a few of those and um sometimes it's like oh my god this unearths a whole different thing on the song for me and then sometimes it's like you're i don't know mostly i just loved it but those experiences of doing those solo acoustic tours what what, what's the process of of revisiting old songs in that way for you and also why do you have like 10 guitars up there are they tuned differently or what's happening yeah yeah well the guitar thing first yeah they all they're all set up to play in different tunings and without which i I can't even well it gives it gives differentiation between the songs otherwise if you were hearing the same voice singing the same same songs um, all these songs on the same guitar it, it it adds to it the sameness of it whereas if they're different guitars they do and and the thing is about guitars is that they all sound good doing they sound they all sound good but they all sound really good doing one particular thing yeah even so like there's like a new guitar i got that is like i was using it for something the other day and i thought this is not that good for this you know but i put i, I pulled it out the last night and I thought, God, this is such a great guitar. If you do this, it's like, wow, it's like a spectacular. So all these guitars get sort of all the, their best qualities get identified in the through the course of time and using them. And then it's like there's there's one like there's a guitar up there that's only gonna play one song if I play it. Yeah. And I might, and that's too many angels, and it's tuned to a, a really E minor tuning. I could play too many angels on an E major tuning and just tune one string down a little bit, but it just happens that the thing I play would not sound as good as. I'm the birdcage by the door There's a baby angel drummer His eyes are open wide Two more tiny cherubs On the metal side by side You've identified a particular thing that sounds good doing it and then also they're just at the ready so you can grab it without having to it was effortless. There was something I absolutely loved. Like, like you said, you don't know if you're going to play the song because is it going to get hollered out from the crowd kind of. Yeah. And then it's just sort of like a, 
get up, wander <laughs> over, grab the right guitar, start playing the song, maybe wander over to piano. It's sort of like the perfect, yeah. the perfect loose evening. I sort of realized that from Neil Young having a bunch of instruments in a circle, including a pump organ and all those things. I thought, well, that's a really great way of doing it. So you can just do whatever you feel like doing. But it got out of hand pretty soon. <laughs> 18 guitars up there and, and uh, it, it's also like pretty ostentatious. It looks kind of like it looks a little bad, but ah, it's, you got a slick. Guitar players on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lindley, David Lindley did that too when I saw him, except it's just a bunch of instruments I don't know. I've never heard of and I don't know what they are. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a way of doing it's a way of getting to the essence of the song, because some of these songs, like, say, In the Shape of a Heart was written in standard tuning. I mean, I'm going, dum, dum, dum. It was a ruby that she wore On a chain around her neck In the shape of a heart I mean, I'm just playing like a regular guitar, but it doesn't sound like much. And I, I had to find a tuning, and it turned out to be this E major tuning that I could play. And I had to learn how to play it in that tuning. But then I was able to play. As able to play these open strings and make this thing sound a little bit bigger. And that, that gave me the chance to play this song well by myself. But that's a hard one to play actually. And some of these songs are really hard to play by myself. And it's much, sometimes I listen back to these solo shows. I said, Oh God, somebody tackle me next time I start to go out there and play these by myself. They're like you, you need a drummer, you need a bass player, play these songs. But here's the thing. Other people have told me, like a really good friend of mine, who's a gallerist in um, Pacific Grove said, I said I was going to do a show. She said, oh, great. Well, well are you going to play with your band or are you going to play by yourself? I said, well, I'm going to play with the band. She said, hmm. okay, well, I'll wait for you to come around by yourself. And I'm like, what's that? You know, she said, well, I just think something happens when you're up there by yourself that doesn't happen with the band. And I, and I, what you really sort of imparted was that when I'm on stage with the band, I'm up there with them. I'm with them. We're together. We're up there and we're relating to each other. You know, if I'm all alone, something else happens that is not not covered up or that is not um impeded by the by by relating with others you know so there's there's, there's there happens to the songs that like in the starkness of them 100 percent pure songwriting you get the pure um intent of the song provided that i can get it you know that i can play it in time sing it in tune uh, it's like a, a more of like a recitation i suppose and, and uh, i think i think even then i think part part of what your friend is getting at is like f for you you're going to look back and assess a recording of that a little differently than someone else but anyone else i know this was the experience for me anyone else is going to go to that show and and like the part of the part of the beauty is in the spontaneity and imperfection and a certain cover song and sort of i mean i know i know as a person who's forgot my share of lyrics uh i don't i love that kind of stuff that's 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 if anything that's like okay i'm not getting the like i, ne I never i never enjoy when someone says like oh this band's so good live it sounds just like their cd it's like 
you know, just sound just like their CD. That's yeah, not right, what, what right. fun is that? Why, now, that's what, what's great about my band is like, we do do creditable versions of the songs that's do it's, we try to make it sound very faithful, but really like it's, they're going to, they're going to change it up. It's going to be different because it's just a different day. And there are also, they're, they're really good at like the two guitarists were particularly really good at joining up with each other and, and, and complimenting what the other is doing. They really are fans of one another. And they're like, you know, Val starts playing up something, Greg just automatically plays a complimentary thing. And so it's, it's, you know, and I said to Val one time, I said, you know, you're so great at soloing. I love your solos. He says, yeah, no one really does it anymore. And I thought <laughs> that something happened that I, I didn't realize that really nobody, but I guess if you think about it, no, like that, that is an old, old style thing to have there be solos. I know that in my childhood, like, in the nineties, I was like exactly squarely in the spot where I think what happens is like take rock bands in the eighties, the solos get bigger and bigger and crazier and more, it just becomes like kind of, kind of clownish and ridiculous. And so then you get like a Nirvana overcorrection. That's like, if there's even going to be a solo, it's going to deliberately sound kind of like dissonant and bad. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so I, I think that it's like, I think like it's all kind of reacting to each other. I know that I love a great solo. And then at the same time, can very much be turned off by one that just feels like a big show-off move, you know? It's like a, it's a characteristic. You have to be willing to show off a little bit. We, yeah. we sometimes refer to what Val's doing as showing off because <laughs> you got to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean... To his face, of course. I mean, it's just a, a, an affectionate way of, you know, with when Val solos, he might make it and he might not. He might not. He might crash and burn. It might. It could be like, and it's a thrilling to have him go out on, on a limb, you know, a musical limb, and like find himself out there, and sometimes like swinging way out over the abyss and going woo and coming back and make, make being back on the, you know, solid ground. It's like pretty exciting for me, and that's what keeps. That's what keeps it. Uh, fresh for me, you know, the band, yeah. the plays. and sometimes it's, it's true also of the rhythm sections. There are times when these guys are playing something so solid and they're innovating and some, they're doing something in a song that they have. And I'll, if I turn around and they'll be like, they'll be grinning at each other. They'll be like, mm, that, we found something here. Is that cool? You like that? It's like, that's fun being in a band. It's really, it's really, I wish I'd been in a band in high school. Um, like I say, I wish I'd known Greg Lease and gone off into the, you know. I respect you wishing that's what happened, but I'm perfectly cool with the way it did happen. Yeah. Are you? Do you actively seek out young young artists like Phoebe Bridgers and Blake Mills and Dawes, or does that sort of come to you? It just happens the way you meet anybody. I, funny, I just found a photograph. You know, how your phone will sometimes give you a little little slideshow. I don't know how. What I mean, I'm I'm an ignoramus when it comes to phones. It suddenly started, and there was this picture. Tall Wilkenfeld and these bunch of people I don't know, but and then and then a picture of Phoebe and her friend Marshall Vore. But I don't remember it being that's not the time that we met because that, but it might have been, I don't know. I just like, <laughs> I think that I meet her even before I remember meeting because I remember meeting her. Um, she's very striking, you know, but it was later that I heard her work and went, holy shit, that's that girl. 
Yeah. I pitched an article about a Connor Oberst show that I actually never even got to write, but it got me access to the show. And then I just look up Phoebe Bridgers, never heard of this person who's going to open it. And then she starts into this song, Smoke Signals. And I just remember being like, holy shit, this yeah. is crazy. And and you recently described like James Taylor's ability to like very quietly hypnotize a giant room. Yeah. It was that, it was that. It was like, oh man. And yeah. honestly, a lot of your early songs did that same thing to me with sparse songs. I don't know. Well, I'm sitting down by the highway, down by that highway side. Dreams are rolling down across the places in my mind And I've just had a taste of something fine the words had all been spoken And somehow the feeling still I want to ask this because this set of lines, I don't, I don't, it doesn't need to mean anything, but I'll let you go on this. Um, these days I sit on cornerstones and count the time and quarter tones till 10. My friend, don't confront me with my failures. I've not forgotten them. You're 16, 17 years old. Does that have specific meaning? You know where you were? I, I just, I, I love it so much. These days I'll sit on cornerstone and count the time and quarter tones to 10. My forgotten them. another imperfect line you know another line that I didn't quite <laughs> it doesn't need an answer and maybe it's better not having one if I'm honest well I would just explain what I mean no I mean to explain does it have a specific meaning I mean the confront that whole I think people really that don't confront me with my failures it's a little bit of this, this lines come from, you know, stuff I was reading and stuff I was um, thinking the idea of counting to 10 to try to like, you know, calm yourself. Mm, nice. But quarter tones. So counting in quarter tones means half tones are, uh, uh, quarter tones is, uh, 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 you know, there's like, uh, it's like a, like to count to 10 would be like to go, uh, you know, like it, yeah, cool. What the hell I was trying to say, but I mean, it, it. that's not the part. That's the kind of part that is doesn't really come off. <laughs> I don't think yeah. anybody knows that that's what that means, or that's what it refers to. But the thing about, I think people re- re- relate to the. Don't confront me with my failures. I had, yeah. You know, writing songs when you're 16. You know, the, you gotta remember, like what what we listened to when I was 16. We're Bob Dylan and the Beatles, you know, John Lennon, Buffy St. Marie. Uh, that was before Joni Mitchell, but you could certainly include her. And, and Joan Baez, who was a great collector. And, and shortly after that, Judy Collins, who collected all these songwriters like Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell. And, or Tom Rush, who did, you know, like James Taylor songs. There was a way that people really listened and you know, it was a whole culture of, of lyrics and uh, songwriting. So that, that was, it's very different 
than than has been for a long time. And I think maybe maybe some of that's back. You have you know Phoebe Bridgers, you have you know Taylor Goldsmith, and and in the middle you've got I mean incredible writers like Sean Sean Coven, Steve Earle. I mean these are masters. These are people yeah. who've written songs that are indelible and who that that are you know that that live on in you. You know you hear the song once and it just like you say it hypnotizes you and you suddenly that you take that on as part of your lexicon of you know meaningful thing searching for a lifetime for what you want to see when all we've ever needed has been there all along inside of you and me I want to see you holding out your light I want to see you find your Thanks for having me on your show. <laughs> uh, thanks for thanks for making the music that made the show possible, and thanks for doing this. It was the perfect way to punctuate this uh, little project. A lot of fun. Thanks, man. I hope to get to talk to you again sometime, and, and uh, by all means, Ireland or uh, you know Orca, Orcas. I mean, and uh, someplace. Okay, I, I'm on Orcas. Hit me up. Okay. All right. Thank you to everybody for listening to the show. Downhill from Everywhere is available on July 23rd. If you want to hear the podcast I'm making now, just search And The Pitch anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Routine Layup. Look for any information from this episode in the show description. And thank you very much. I'm Stephanie Myers. And I'm Stephanie Benya. This is Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes. We're excited that you're here to join us on our storytelling journey where we talk about music that has featured prominently throughout the course of our 20-year friendship. It's our soundtrack and probably yours too. From hair metal to new wave to even classic country, we have stories to tell. These are the songs you want to forget but love to remember. Join us as we talk about the music that shaped our lives, including the music videos we watched a million times on MTV, BET, and VH1. 
Every other Wednesday, we'll be bringing you our stories, memories, and fun facts related to songs and artists. Be sure to check out our episode archive where we've discussed artists ranging from David Bowie and Tom Petty to Willie Nelson and Cool and the Gang. You don't want to miss out. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And guess what? We're now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Be sure to follow us on the socials. That's Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Stephanie's Talk Tunes, and on Twitter at Stephanie's Talk. That is Stephanie's plural, Stephanie's Talk Tunes. So come one, come all. There's no VIP passes required. All music junkies admitted. Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description. (laughs) 